ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. All right, let's talk international affairs. International affairs. This Saturday, the 24th of February, marks the second anniversary since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. According to the UN, around 30,000 civilian casualties have been reported, although the actual figure I would think is likely much higher. The human cost of the two-year war remains unknown, with both sides concealing their losses. Russia's especially secretive about civilian deaths in the areas that it has invaded. Initially, of course, Ukraine's army succeeded in reclaiming a lot of territory from Russia. However, despite ongoing efforts, military experts now view the war as being at a stalemate. So, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian leader's choice to let go of his top general during this crucial time, along with the urgent need for ammunition, seems to have made things harder for Ukraine as well. And the uncertainty about US support, of course, adds more complications. In the past week, uh, Mr Zelensky's announced Ukraine's downed seven Russian fighter jets. At the same time, Ukrainian troops have pulled back from Ad, Ad, uh, Ad, 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 sorry, Avdivka, a vital town under intense pressure from Russian forces aiming to protect lives. However, Russia claims full control and President Putin is certainly trumpeting it as a significant victory. Joining us uh, live from Kiev is uh, BBC News Ukraine correspondent James Waterhouse. James, good evening. Welcome to Nightlife. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Great to have you with us too. What is the current situation in Ukraine as we mark this second anniversary? Well, I think this is a war, this is an invasion which is different from those traumatic early days, weeks and months in tw- early 2022. As you allude to, I think it is in a, in a when you look at the normal movement on the front line. But at the, in the same breath, it is Russia launching several of uh, Ukraine is doing nothing but defend, hang on. Mm. And I think President Zelensky, the gloss of this invasion where he could support, those days are gone now for him. There is that Western scepticism which is directly affecting his troops' ability to fight. Uh, and the, the figure we often get from soldiers when we speak to them is seven to one. They say we are outnumbered and outgunned in terms of ammunition mm. in a ratio of about seven to one. So any talk of liberation or, or a Ukrainian victory is now very much on the back burner. Mm. Yeah, this point was made to us more than a year and a half ago, I must say, by experts here who say it is not possible for Russia to lose this. They are too big. They are too committed. They've got t- too many, too much men, material and resources to to be defeated. If the only way that this will end is if Russia decides they want to end it. Well, I think I think and, that, that, and, and that, might, that might that might that assessment might well be the case, is it? Well, I think you know it is true to say that Russia is the bigger fighter. It always has been, right? Mm. And the problem for Ukraine is, yes, it's put up an extraordinary defence in a war that many expected would last for days. Yes, it is incredibly reliant on Western help, all of that Western weaponry and machinery and armoured vehicles and all the rest of it. Um, the crucial thing now for Ukraine, they still see this whole the whole choice uh, as being existential in that if it was to agree to some kind of ceasefire, Vladimir Putin can remain on a war footing. He can spend you know, a, a third of his annual budget in public expenditure military, which Russia has always done, really. It's always geared its population, its structure towards military might. Mm. And Ukraine will continue to be weakened with what's going on in the West. So 
look, there is still a chance that maybe Crimea could be isolated and, and forced Vladimir Putin into some kind of concession. But it's clear in the medium term, Russia is looking to consolidate what it has taken. It might want to take the rest of those um, regions, those oblasts that it's seen uh, taken so far. But in two, five, seven years' time, there is nothing stopping Russia really from trying again. It doesn't matter, I think, whatever piece of paper is signed. Um, Vladimir Putin's ambition was always to take the whole of Ukraine, and I don't think he is suddenly going to shelve that. No, that 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 strategic assessment, I think, um, is shared by by quite a lot of people. That Mr. Putin seems to be indeed amenable to some sort of uh, agreement to sit along the current lines where it is, like call a halt to it where it is. But as you say, that would simply enable Russia to to uh, consolidate those gains and then wait, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. And I think the, the wording Vladimir Putin said was, you know, on his terms, which I think tells you all you need to know. And I think you know, this is the, the age-old frustration of Ukraine where – Politically, it's wanted to be a part of the European Union. Politically, it's wanted to be a part of the NATO alliance. It is a country that has been leaning westward for some time. But for the last decade, it, is, it has been Russia trying to pull it closer to hmm. its own orbit. And I think it really it does feel like a country that's fallen through the cracks a bit because it is the fact that it is not in NATO that's allowed Russia to launch this invasion. It's the fact that it, it gave up its own nuclear arsenal in the 90s in exchange for assurances over its territory that, Vlad, that Vladimir Putin can hide behind his own arsenal in the actions he is taking. And it's hard to see. It's hard to imagine what security assurances Ukraine can sign or agree to with its allies and, and Russia that wouldn't prevent um, a further assault down the line. It's an incredibly difficult juncture for Ukraine as we speak. They might think, well, look, membership of NATO would, would solve that because an attack on one is an attack on all. It's not likely that NATO is going to admit Ukraine in the foreseeable future, is it? No, and, and what you hear time and time again from Jens Stoltenberg, who might be reaching the end of his tenure, is you know Ukraine's place belongs in the alliance. It, it, is, it is what is going to happen. But what he doesn't give detail on is when. when. Hmm. And you're right, there is a there is a problem in, in for NATO in trying to admit a country that is under attack in a full-scale war. And, you know, there is a real nervousness in Baltic states like Lithuania, Latvia, who are increasing their defence spending substantially because they are really, there's history at play here, right? Former satellite states of the Soviet Union, they are concerned that Vladimir Putin is a maximalist, that they say he will go for them next. And Vladimir Putin will test that Article 5, an attack on one being an attack on all. Mm. It's something Europe is incredibly nervous about, not least with, you know, President Trump potentially getting elected to office, potentially bringing, um, you know, the, the America's NATO membership into into some kind of doubt and an admission, certainly from the EU, that it couldn't plug any gap. It's trying, but these are really perilous times. Mm. Yes, despite Europe's um, support for Ukraine, without US support, Ukraine couldn't continue this war, could it? It's hard to imagine it. I mean, to give you an idea, the, the European Union promised a million artillery shells at the start of last year that it would that it, that it mm. would deliver, and it delivered fewer than 400,000. Such is the issue with manufacturing in Europe. America can offer military packages of tens of billions of pounds uh, that almost solely include weaponry and ammunition because of the scale and speed at which it can 
manufacture them and also america has you know decent tech it has good kit that it is able to to provide to the ukrainians but it always needs the logistics to follow it through and i think on the ukrainian side there's an acknowledgement that several things now need to happen at once for the tide to turn you know in the past it was like a shopping list wasn't it he was saying look give me missiles give me tanks give me fighter jets now all of these things have arrived or are scheduled to arrive but a lot of things need to happen at once for the momentum to be seized in some way and i think you know we are some way off that given that military aid now from america is being blocked altogether and you mentioned earlier the fall of avdivka this you know small town in the east but it poses now a difficult question i think it'll either be the first of many settlements to fall once more and it will either fuel those doubters in the west or it might actually kick them into action because the idea of a russian victory in ukraine you know, could mean that when we read history books or our children or grandchildren read history books in the future, this will be the decade when the West was unable to curb Russia's aggression, despite all the sanctions and military interventions we've seen. And to loop back to your original question, the appetite from NATO and the West for this to turn into a world war, for Western boots to touch the ground, has been minimal to zero. And I think Vladimir Putin knows that. Yeah. Exactly. And it's minimal to zero and, and remains that. Well, you might argue that that's been the case for a while ever since the annexation of Crimea in the first place. Uh, that that, yeah, that the West has shown no appetite for confronting uh, R- Russia here. I, I mean, and in a fair assessment, you might even say that Ukraine has lost at this stage. They've lost a significant amount of territory. They've lost Crimea and they really haven't been able to make any meaningful progress in pushing the Russians back. And according to their own strategic assessments, that's probably not possible now. Do you think? I think you've got to, I think you've got to define lost, right? So I'm talking to you from Kiev. I can walk out the door. I can, uh, I can go buy a coffee and I can walk freely. And president Zelensky, the democratically elected leader is still in office. Hmm. So it doesn't look like Ukraine has lost from where I'm sitting. Of course, this is a vast country, not as vast as Australia, but, you know, it depends where you are. Yes, it has lost territory. It has lost a generation of men in this fight. And and you wonder what the longer term implications will be. But it is still standing. I think the problem is that this story isn't over and the threat of Russia still trying to take it or has not gone away. But, you know, I think a loss would be me talking to you from Kiev on the odd chance that I might be allowed to stay in the country. Mm where a puppet regime has been installed by Russia, where freedoms have been eroded like we've seen in uh, occupied territories and where any kind of dissent is punished by torture or even death. So I think that would amount to a loss instead of where we are now. Mm. The one thing that's, I suppose, not not clear at all is is, uh, that I've read Pentagon assessments, they say, but gee whiz, you know, truth's the first casualty of war, someone's observed many, many times over. But the I mean, US assessments say privately they think that the Russians may have lost in excess of 200 or 250,000 uh, fighting personnel killed or wounded. But numbers on the Ukrainian side uh, are not clear at all and they must have lost very significant numbers and their capacity to pursue this war in terms of human resources has got to have some finite point, doesn't it? For sure. And I think if you're Ukraine and you're a democratic country and you're held to account by Western allies and having to be transparent, 
at what point is it still acceptable to mask your losses yeah. and still wage this war and carry out the level of mobilization that we're seeing for all men under the age of, of 60? And I think, you know, the military consensus is that if you are the attacking side, which Ukraine isn't at the moment, but if it wants to liberate territory, you need to outnumber your opponents by three to one because of the the, the level of, of expected losses. You know, Ukraine at the moment, I, I've gone to countless cities, the streets feel emptier, there are fewer men around, and mm -hmm. anyone who wanted to volunteer and fight did so long ago. They did so in their thousands in those early days and weeks. But though the that group of people are either exhausted on the front line, injured, or dead. And now we are seeing men mobilized who don't want to fight, who aren't necessarily fighters. Mm. And conversely, on the Russian side, we're, we're seeing mobilization to a much greater scale, and size in a war of attrition counts for more. President Putin is clearly waiting until November in the expectation that Donald Trump might become president. And the expectation then is, and if you look at the chaotic nature of the US Congress, uh, that support for Ukraine might be significantly less after November. That's I mean, at the beginning. Know, that's at the beginning I mean, of another. That's the beginning of another winter. Uh, and there's yeah. no talk of a counteroffensive this coming summer. So it's really difficult to see how this is going to progress. Is it? Is 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 it? Yeah, it's difficult because I think in the past Ukraine has been able to present liberation as a kind of mm. as a case in point to its Western allies and say, look, look for all the billions of dollars you're giving us, look at what we're doing with it. But any talk of a counteroffensive, as you say, is non-existent this year. Now, Donald Trump in the past has said he's ruled out more support for Ukraine. So does that mean that the level of support so far would continue? And also, you know, he prized, you know, he claims to be a negotiator. Um, you know, is there an offer that Ukraine could make to a potential President Trump in his second term that would allow him to keep this this support going? But these are nervy times. These these are, you know, I think you, you can be sure that Vladimir Putin is working to a timeline of the US election. You wonder whether the Russians will meddle with disinformation campaigns and the actual election process of itself. Course they, of, course to, will, of, yeah, course yeah, of course they will. Of course they will. Of course they will. So, you know, they, 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 this is, of course, on the horizon. And, you know, you have the politicians, the incumbent leaders, trying to give what assurances they can. Um, but these are assurances that ultimately hinge on the election outcome. Mm. And I think, you know, there are former generals who are able to speak publicly in the US who say, look, we are degrading Russia's army without losing a single American life. That furthers our own interests and 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 uh, prevents Russia from reshaping mm. the whole security order of the planet. But you wonder if those voices are being replicated in the Oval Office, in the Situation Room, under a Trump administration. I think Ukraine would certainly be hoping so. How secure is Vladimir Zelensky politically? Mm. Um, he still enjoys broad support in terms of his endeavour for the war, but trust in him has dipped quite significantly by a third. It's hard to see whether this is sort of the natural kind of flow of things in a in a presidential term, but I think that's coupled with a fatigue of this war. I think he's been criticised for some decisions he made early on, and there are people, you know, there is a political cost when you're mobilising the population. Um, the other problem with it is that he's had this last, you know, the past few months, he's had this long running beef with the head of his armed forces, General Valery Zeluzhny, after that failed counteroffensive over the question of whether this war is a stalemate. And that beef just widened to the extent that he was eventually fired. 
Um, and General Zeluzny subsequently been seen as a kind of political rival to President Zelensky, yeah, sure. even though elections mm. are on hold. And in Ukraine, it's interesting. It, it, the manifesto of a politician matters less. It's actually about the figure. People here just like to vote for a character. So, yeah, I think that the gloss has gone. Mm. But history will judge him kindly for staying in the first place when, you know, he, he you know he faced down... Indeed. The, the, Showed considerable, showed considerable courage. James, uh, terrific to have your insights and, uh, and, and time as well, and I do thank you for it. Uh, appreciate it. Thank okay. you. James Waterhouse is the BBC's News' Ukraine correspondent speaking to us there live, live from Ukraine in a very sobering time. Nightlife with Philip Clark on ABC Radio.